It's six o'clock straight up. <clears throat> Let me try that again. <clears throat> it's six o'clock straight up. Good evening. It's the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. We're here with an hour's worth of progressive politics, opinion, attitude, and in some cases, foolishness. And we got a real good guest who's coming in. There was a primary that was held yesterday. We'll talk about that. But I guess I have to start, and I have to say this. There are a lot of people I know who really have no interest in sports whatsoever. I mean, whatsoever. And I'm not talking about women now. I'm talking about dudes. It's like, sports? You know, I'll go whitewater rafting or kayaking or rock climbing or whatever. I don't care about sports. I don't care about football, baseball, basketball, ping pong, you name it. They don't care about it. But America has been made to care about Ray Rice. And, uh, you know, for it, the Ray Rice saga, right? Because it, it's a tragedy on one level, but it's a saga, okay? It is, for a number of reasons, the high point of tabloid journalism. This wasn't the New York Times that had this video. This wasn't Channel 4 or Channel 7 or any of the other channels on there. This was TMZ Sports. TMZ. You remember that guy Harvey Levin? He's on the People's Court. TMZ is his baby. And, you know, TMZ broke the Donald Sterling story. TMZ just breaks sports news all over the place. And they broke the Ray Rice story in that they had and managed to procure, probably bought, the footage from inside that elevator. Now, back in February, everybody saw the footage of Ray Rice dragging his then fiance, now wife, out of an elevator at the, by the way, now closed Rebel Casino. Is it Rebel or Ravel? I, I never, never. Martin, what is it? Rebel or Ravel? I think it's Rebel. Rebel? Yes. Okay. All right. The Rebel Casino. Uh, the monument to Chris Christie. Oh, sorry. It's bigger than he is. One of a few things. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me not go off on tangents here. So TMZ gets the footage from inside the elevator. And what do we see when we see inside the elevator? Ray Rice clocking his fiance, Not just punching her. Clocking. Twice. Hit her so hard her head banged against the rail and she fell unconscious. And with that, the NFL, which had in its finite wisdom given him a two-game suspension, and the prosecutor, and this is where I really, I'm going to emphasize this in a minute. The prosecutor put him in some kind of a, uh, an intervention program after being charged with aggravated assault. Now, all of a sudden, everybody got to backtrack. All right. Now, Roger Goodell puts in an automatic six-game suspension for anybody caught with, the, you know, uh, accused at this point of domestic violence. But he did not retrofit that to Ray Rice. So what happens? He's been fired by the Baltimore Ravens, who sprang to his defense initially, and he was suspended indefinitely by the league. Now, how long indefinitely is? I don't know. The rest of the season? 
couple of games. Most sports pundits are saying Ray Rice is finished. Done. Forget about it. And not just because of the domestic violence incident. But we'll get to that in a minute. Here's what I want to know. Because the NFL, Roger Goodell says, we didn't see the footage. We didn't have access to it. And, of course, the NFL has no subpoena, legal subpoena power. They couldn't have subpoenaed it. Roger Goodell says they asked the cops and they asked some other people for it and were refused. Not just, well, we don't know if there is any. They were refused, according to Goodell. Okay. And, by the way, he's not going anywhere. For those of you who think, well, I ought to step and Forget about it. Not happening. But here's the rub. The prosecutor saw it. There's no doubt in my mind that the prosecutor, the guy that cut Ray Rice that break, saw that footage. So then you got to ask yourself, why did he cut him the break? You saw a guy punch a woman twice in the head. In the head. And you put him in a pre-trial, or not a pre-trial, yeah, pre-trial intervention thing, where if, you know, if you're a good guy and don't beat up your fiancé, soon-to-be wife, for a certain period of time, you're cool? No jail time? I'm not sure that makes a lot of sense to me. And see, the, the problem is we have such a ravenous sporting press in this country. They're all running around trying to figure out what the NFL should have done. And they're not asking what the prosecutor should have done. They kind of say, well, yeah, the prosecutor had the stuff, but it's the NFL. It's Roger Goodell. He's going to have to go. Psh, get a grip. Roger Goodell has made stupid money. I'll say it again. Stupid money for the 32. Is it 32? I think it's 32. Owners of the National Football League. Most of whom are millionaires and billionaires before they spend a dime on a football team. You think they're going to get rid of the cash cow here? The NFL is a $9 billion business. Now, if people think that because of the way the NFL and Roger Goodell handled the Ray Rice situation, people will turn off their televisions and not watch football, you're not living in America. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Save for those people who I know. Say, I don't watch any sports. I don't care what it is. I'm not watching it. Those folks are a minority. Now, there will be women, and rightly so, who will say, I can't support that. Look at what he did. Now, here's the other side of this equation. Ray Rice is a 27-going-on-28-year-old running back. For those of you who don't know anything about football, look it up. Running backs last an average of about three to four years in the NFL. Then their legs give out, their bodies give out, and they're done. I'm talking about the best running backs. And last year, Ray Rice wasn't one of them. He did well the year before that. He's, he's had some good years. He's originally from Nourishell, right here in the New York metropolitan area. Went to Rutgers, to college. But he's done not just because of the domestic violence. Roger Goodell could at some point this season 
reinstate Ray Rice. A, no team's going to sign him for fear of the backlash. Now, that backlash might take the form of protests at a stadium and all the rest of that. That backlash will not take the form of people refusing to watch football. That won't happen because America is a football junkie nation. America, particularly American men. For American men, football is like heroin. <laughs> I hate to say it. I really do. But it is. So this is a sad, twisted, ugly saga. But I got to tell you, you want to know what the real deal is? Ask why the prosecutor who saw that footage and had that footage, unless the cops withheld it from them, why they didn't give him jail time. Well, not give him jail time. He had to go to trial. But why he put him in some intervention program, which would have resulted in no jail time, assuming he kept his nose clean, which, by the way, I assume is still in place. I don't understand it. I really do not understand it. It's nine minutes past the hour of six o'clock. You know what else I don't understand, Martin? I don't know how many of you all around the world or in the galaxy, because, you know, the Internet goes everywhere. All right. And by the way, I want to welcome in, especially welcome in, some people who may be listening this evening who are not from the New York metropolitan area. We've gotten calls from San Francisco. I got a good buddy down there in South Carolina whose name I will not call. And he just found out about the show. And by the way, if you want to talk about Ray Rice, call me. 888-874-4888. Is there anybody that thinks that Ray Rice got the shaft here? Because there are some people who think so, who say, hey, man, you know, Ben Roethlisberger was accused of raping a woman. He's still playing, you know, and uh, something worth asking. But I, I shed no tears for Ray Rice. I really don't, even though he's from the same town I was born in. I don't shed any tears for Ray Rice. He should know better. And not just because TMZ exists. But because you don't put your hands on a woman, what's wrong with you? Okay, enough about Ray Rice. You hip to broken windows, Martin? You know about broken windows, right? Uh, no. You don't know about broken windows? Okay, no, no, let me tell, tell you me, about please. Let me tell you about broken windows. Broken windows is a program by which the New York City Police Department aggressively polices low-level quality-of-life offenses slash crimes, depending on how you want to look at it. People say that broken windows led to the death of Eric Garner out on Staten Island not that long ago. It's not a new program. Actually, it came to New York City during William Bratton, the current police commissioner's first term as police commissioner. And the theory is, if you don't tolerate little crimes... Big crimes won't happen or will happen less frequently. And back in the mid-1990s, 20 years ago, 
broken windows appear to have worked to an extent. So they brought it back now, this aggressive policing of quality of life offenses. But critics say, I think with some justification, that it's created a tale of two cities. Where have I heard that before? Tale of two. Oh, that's right. Bill de Blasio. Tale of two cities. Ready for air before him. Tale of two cities. One is populated primarily by whites and minor infractions like drinking on a stoop or smoking a joint are very, very rarely sanctioned. And another primarily populated by blacks and Latinos where walking down the street can get you stopped and interrogated. Now, the police department line on this, and, and Bill Bratton says this, you know, the activities around broken windows and this aggressive policing happen in the most problematic areas of the city. The places where there's the most crime. And I assume the most criminals. But the Daily News the other day did an investigation. And what they found was that in low-crime neighborhoods, blacks and Latinos were still being stopped and being issued summonses for, like, spitting on a sidewalk and stuff like that. And there's really, like, there's a problem trying to figure out exactly why that's taking place. Now, the disparity in these summonses is the highest in the 24th Precinct, which is the northern part of the Upper West Side. Blacks and Latinos make up 34% of the population, got 84% of the summonses. The 84th Precinct in Brooklyn, Brooklyn Heights and Dumbo, 28% of the population, 78% of the summonses. Both of those instances, a spread of 50, that's 5-0 percentage points. 20th Precinct, southern part of the Upper West Side, 48-point spread. 19th Precinct, the Upper East Side, 43-point spread. And the 13th Precinct with a 42-point spread. You get the picture, Martin? Yes, yes. So here's the problem. How do you explain this? Now, the news actually sifted through a whole bunch of data. But they ran into a bit of a problem because some of the data is no longer parsed by race. So you don't really know. But you might want to think, potentially, that this is still a problem. This is still an issue these disparities haven't really narrowed that much just because they took race off the form. And you see, it is these kinds of disproportionate activities, the perception, whether it's real or not, and apparently it is real, the perception that there's one set of rules for black people and Latino people and a different set of rules for white people. And, of course, don't even get me started about this study that came out last month that said attitudes about crime 
are almost invariably based on race. Invariably based on race. So we'll revisit that in a little bit because we got a very, 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 very special guest with us this evening. He's a good friend, friend of long standing, as a matter of fact. And uh, he's a friend because he don't take no mess from nobody. Excuse me, that's, that's, that's bad grammar. <laughs> he does not take any nonsense or guff from anyone. He is from... Uh, hey, you still writing for El Diario? I'm not. Uh, fortunately, I'm not. Since April, they, they they didn't deem my services necessary after 20 years of oh writing a God. column, and and it's okay because you know the changing scenery, uh, as you well know, Mark Riley. You know yeah. this is what we're subjected to. I appreciated the time. I appreciated the fact that they left me, uh, but but I do not appreciate that the new owners, which are from Argentina and Spain. They still think that we're, you know, under their domain and as such with an European arrogance and that of colonizers as they are, they still think that, you know, they, they were in Puerto Rico and they could actually, you know, dictate. So they didn't allow me to actually have a last column or last two or three columns after 20 years of writing a column and being editor-in-chief for 41 months of El Diario. But it's okay. I'm right now still with New York One. I just got out of there. I'm doing New York One, as you well know. I'm doing and New York City one. and State as well. I'm doing City and State and City and State New York, City and State TV. And things are really doing well. I'm also doing HITN nationally, which in Spanish. So, you know, God is good, benevolent, and, and I cannot complain. And if I do, nobody's going to listen. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, hold on. I, I haven't introduced you yet, you know. People don't know you your haven't. name. Ladies and gentlemen, oh. this is Herson. Borrero. There you go. Now, there you what? go. Herson Borrero from La Playa de Ponce. The ship stopped off there, but, it, you know, so we understand. And Mark and I, I appreciate that after all, after all these years that we've known each other, in spite of myself, Mark calls me his friend. Absolutely. Absolutely. Herson, <laughs> i got to get to the meat of this thing because it really bugs me out. Yes, sir. Pre- President Obama waffled. Folded like a rusty card table on taking executive action on immigration. How is the Latino community reacting to this? Not well at all. Not well at all. It, it is a disappointing action by him, but it's, you know, just in a series of, you know, letdowns. It, it breaks our heart. He were with uh, then Senator Obama's candidate. You know, in 2008, I, as a columnist, as a commentator, was with Barack Obama uh, over Hillary. And I remember talking to Charlie Rangel, our esteemed senior member of Congress, and, uh, you know, really having a discussion. And I wrote several columns about the fact that I thought that they were making a mistake with Hillary Rodham Clinton. You know that uh, I wasn't the only one. There were other voices. I remember Charles Barron from Brooklyn. Oh, yeah. Uh, Barack Obama, he's also somewhat disappointed for other reasons. I remember uh, State Senator Bill Perkins also. But but in the case of immigration, it is like, you know, the, the you know what hit the fan already on this one. It's like even his greatest defenders in the Latino community, whether it's on the West Coast, East Coast, or whether it's out on the West, 
uh, you know, people have had it. It, it. There is no reason. The trappings, I can only attribute it because I, I still have respect for what Barack Obama represents, and I still think that the potential was never achieved. The trappings of the office just turned this person who was for change and being bold, and, and it's reverted back to being an academic, a professor, and not dealing with the nitty-gritty of changing the presidency. So it's disappointing in that sense. He's, he's waffled with us. He's lied to us. He's, he's, you know, it's deception after deception. And this is the latest example where we, you know, we're put at the, at the, uh, underneath the table, in the back of the bus, whichever historical metaphor you want to use. It's just sad to see that he would actually do this to us when we have supported him in his bid in 2008 and then again for re-election in 2012. It's just really heartbreaking and heart-wrenching. And, but, you know, you can't trust politicians. And we, <laughs> sure thought, we thought that the president was different. Barack Obama has turned into a slave of the trappings of the office of president and, and forgetting the promises that he made and that, you know, he could have done the right thing and he could have done the right thing with an executive order and he just wandered away. Now, you, you sound like you because you know, Mark, you know the issue well. Yes, I do. It stinks what he did. It stinks. Simple as that. Yep, yep. And, and, and it, so we don't know what to do anymore. So we're just saying, you know, he's put us again. He, you know, relegated us to, a, to another area now with this whole thing, the speech that we're anticipating in another uh, two and a half hours at 9 o'clock. He goes live to the nation. Certainly it's important. Terrorism is what, but it seems like there's always an issue if it's not health. You know, when it's not this, it's that. But when it comes to... And I, as a Puerto Rican, I don't have a problem. I'm a U.S. citizen, mm-hmm. uh, not, not my own choosing, but rather the historical context of what the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico represents after the North American invasion of 1898. But for other brothers and sisters from throughout the Caribbean, Central, and, uh, and, and, and the rest of Latin America, and, and other parts, there are other people. People forget that it isn't just Latinos that have this issue with immigration. Uh, you know, there are people from Ireland, there are people from Europe, yep. um, but it's the brown people that pay, you know, the, the highest price because they're after us. They don't, you know, if you're white from Europe, you can get away with some of these uh, all these things, but we're the ones, you know, being accused of all kinds of things, uh, which in, in reality, the whole immigration problem, as you well know and understand, is actually an economic problem and not a political problem. Absolutely. But, Herschel, let me ask you this. The rationale that the pundits will give for this is that Obama caved into pressure not from his right, but from people within his own party who were scared to death that had he taken executive action before the election in November, they'd lose their gigs. Justifiable fear or crap? Justifiable fear if you're a wimp, justifiable fear if you're actually insecure, and justifiable fear if you don't think that the Latino vote will pay you back by not voting for you. Uh, I'm encouraging, I wrote a commentary in Spanish uh, in, in which I'm encouraging all Latinos to not vote Democrat. I'm not telling them to vote for the Republicans. Don't vote Democrat in November. Don't vote in those midterm elections. Don't, if you've got a congressional member who is a Democrat, don't vote against them. Just don't go to vote. Skip it. You know, go into the polls. You know, go in and vote. Just vote the, you know, don't vote for the congressional candidate. Let them feel the fact, the wrath 
of your vote, and it's the only thing they're going to respect because they did what they did, and you're absolutely correct in what you're saying, but those members of, uh, of the Democratic Party that see it fit or saw it fit to be able to put pressure on the president because they're afraid to lose their seats, let them lose their seats. That's the only way they're going to respect us. We're going to have to really punch them hard in the voting booth, which is what they understand. I, don't I have agree it. with you. I agree with you 100%, Harrison. Well, that's, that's where I'm at, and, and I will encourage it. And I think that, you know, what's surprising that I don't think the president realized he's so out of touch right now in the White House and from in the Oval Office that he just doesn't realize that this could be the backlash in the same manner. It isn't like Harrison Borrero is the only one that's thinking about this. I think that there are people, and it's, you know, it's, it's across the country. So if that happens... I don't think that the midterm elections are going to go very well for the Democratic Party. At least they're not going to have a, a, a portion that they always count of or the percentage they count of in terms of the Latino vote. We're really upset. We really feel betrayed, and we feel used, which is worse. Our guest is Herson Barrero. He is from city and state. <clears throat> He's also on New York One's political rundown, uh, which, what, airs in a, well, it's not long from now, right? It's at seven o'clock in a little while. We just pre-taped it live, and I was and I was dying to get out of there because you know, crazy Curtis, he was crazier than ever. <laughs> crazy Curtis Lee, absolutely. That's right. Person, do you get a sense that there will be any effort made to form a new political party? Uh, see, because I'll, I'll tell you quite frankly what bothers me most about this immigration thing, while. Barack Obama and these Democrats twiddle their thumbs. People are getting deported. Left and right. Children are getting deported. And it's like nobody wants to say anything about that. So, uh, you know, absent any Democratic spine, you think there's room for another party or something? Well, my feeling about parties, by the way, I'm not registered as a Democrat. I'm not registered as a Republican. I'm an independent. I vote in general elections. I vote candidacies. Um, so I, I don't participate in, a, in, in primaries. However, I am always cautious about political structures and parties. They only serve those that control it. You know well too well about that. And, and, and I think that that's dangerous also. So my whole thing is that we don't have right now, uh, we could be a part of a movement for a third party. But I think that we need to stick with the Democrats because they have benefited from our allegiance, our loyalty, and, you know, so many times over, helping them elect and making history, that I think there's a sense of payback, a, a sense of respect that they're going to learn why, one way or the other. So I, I would encourage them to stay, those that are Democrats, stay within the Democratic Party, uh, and, and, but, you know, be able to punish them. Uh, by doing what I'm suggesting in the November elections and let them know I'm going to sit this one out and you're going to feel the wrath or the absence of my vote in when they're counted the election of November 4th. That's how I think we get some respect from the Democratic Party and the structure so that if, if they in fact wind up with the result that they were afraid of, which is losing, because in fact they chose to offend us and betray us, then let us teach them a lesson and say, well, this is what happens when you do that, and we're going to stick around to be able to take you out of office by doing that. Before I let you go, Harrison, there was a, 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 an election yesterday, <laughs> a primary election. What did you think? Uh, you know, Governor Cuomo 
Didn't have the walk in the park that a lot of people thought he would. Uh, Zephyr Teachout got like, what, 35 percent of the vote. Uh, the lieutenant governor candidate got like 40 percent of the vote. Uh, right. Any surprises you saw there? Yeah, the surprise is that Andrew Cuomo, as intelligent, as savvy as he is, has turned into, from that young man that you and I, because we're about, you know, he's a little younger than both you and I, but he's yeah. still and grow in the political sense. We saw him mature and grow in speech. He has become a, a political idiot. He has really, you know, sometimes it's, people say there's a saying that, and people know about it, sometimes you're too smart for yourself, you know, and I think that that's what's happening, the arrogance. Uh, the, the fact that he saw it fit or still sees it fit, that somehow there's a sense of entitlement. He certainly didn't learn that from his father. Who was it? Who served as governor of New York State for three terms? But Andrew has turned into something that you know he's insulated with a group of all white male uh, people, uh, men uh, who actually uh, there's three or four of them. They listen to each other. It's a circular firing squad of ideas that have in the position that now, with with what I think is a major embarrassment, mm-hmm. a candidate that he selects from upstate. And then that candidate, he has to save her rear end and spend, I think it was $2.5 million in the last two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. And in the yeah, last you're right. Two. You're right. And, and, and it winds up that he is using a lot of his political stock, a lot of the political mm-hmm. capital, to, for, to not be embarrassed and have her lose the lieutenant governorship. Now, I remind you that he selected this person, Kathy Hochul, who, stand, who stands for everything that really good, progressive, liberal Democrats don't stand for. And what happens? He loses upstate. He was interested in Buffalo, which he spent in the economy there over a billion dollars using the people's money. Mm-hmm. So he was, he was so blind as to doing that that he forgot downstate. So what happens? Where does he win? He wins in New York City. He wins in Brooklyn. He wins in the Bronx. He wins... In Queens, he loses Manhattan to Mr. Wu, okay, uh, and in and, and terms of Kathy Ogle is going to win that. So he loses in, 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 in the Latino and African-American vote. African-American vote and Latino vote, that is brown people and black people, once again, loyal to a person who has disrespected it. And I take you to the, to, back to the fact that, you know, I don't know how many Jews voted, but he certainly saw it fit to go to Israel. To be able to get what what vote, like if he didn't have that vote, but but then it turns around that the most loyal Democrats, that being blacks and Latinos, he leaves out. He doesn't take. He disrespects Andrea Stewart cousin, Senator yes. Andrea Stewart cousin. Totally this, he takes that. He doesn't take her into account. You know, a female African American competent legislator in New York State. And they're just trouncing him. He supports Jeff Klein, who has ridiculed the party. He supports the minority white structure of the borough of the Bronx, which is a borough that is admitted by everyone is a majority-minority borough, but he chooses to then go to support the power structure in the Independent Democratic uh, Conference, which is led by Jeff Klein, who is a traitor to the traditional Democrats. Again, I'm not a Democrat. That's what Democrats will have to deal with. This is the disappointment of 
Andrew Cuomo. I think that he should have looked, that he, that I wish that she had gotten 40%, just like who, <laughs> so that he could really be scared. He, he certainly is not inviting or the kind of governor that was projecting himself to be a possible contender in 26. What I'm hoping for now is that those that really voted against him stay home in November again to teach him a lesson. I'm not, I don't want Rob Astorino as governor. But I want Governor Cuomo to be scared. I want him to be frightened. I want him to. I'm sure he's not happy now. No, you know, I, I would. I would echo that for sure. Do you think he hurt himself uh, if he does have aspirations in 2016? Oh, I, I, for certain he's hurt himself. And I. And and given the fact that did you see the? If you read what's coming out of the uh, more conservative or traditional media, including Wall Street today. Mm-hmm. They're applauding the fact that he is not that crazy leftist and that he didn't give in to the progressives and he didn't do that. So what are they saying? They're making him what? A conservative? So that's what I'm hearing. If you're not that in, in Wall Street and, and, and traditional papers that, uh, that represent uh, the repressive ways of the system, then you're then, you know, one of them. So if they're happy with you, you can't be happy. Uh, those that are of us that are progressive and liberals and and reformers, so he's representing the powers that be. So what I'm hoping for, and I'm hoping someone close to the governor is listening, that he will, you know, have a have a moment to reflect, uh, take some time out, chill out. He's burnt out, and go back to what he really wants. Otherwise, I'm hoping then the only thing I can hope for, Mark, and I'm 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 jumping the gun here. I'm hoping that in 2016. The, the Democratic National Convention comes to Brooklyn. And in Brooklyn, if he continues his way, and he may get reelected come November 4th, but that in 2016, not only will he not be a player in the, in, in, in the national election, but that when he gets up at the National Convention, he's booed by his peers in the, <laughs> in the platform. And, and, I, and I know that there are Democrats that are capable of doing that, and that they do it in Brooklyn, New York. He's got to be cut down to size. Herson Barrero, it's always a pleasure to talk to me. Thank you so much for joining us, and please don't be a stranger. I'm going to give you a call in the future, huh? Absolutely, and, and, and I'm sorry I couldn't get there in person, but I appreciate your including me and letting me speak to your audience. And, Mark, you know, you can always count on me and, you know, uh, palante, palante, as, as, as the young Lord used to say more than 40 years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> Have a great one, man. Take care. Take care. Thanks. Bye-bye. Herson Barrero from City and State and from New York One's Political Rundown. It's now 25 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. Should we take a very quick musical break there, Martin, and come back and talk about some of the other primary results? Sure, why not? And, of course, our number is 888 You want to talk about immigration, you want to talk about Ray Rice, you want to talk about President Obama, you want to talk about ISIS, and we got other stuff to talk about. You want to talk about the primaries? You want to talk about Andrew Cuomo? Feel free. 888-874-4888. Back in a flash.
23 minutes before the hour of 7 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am he. And if you want to give me a call, if you want to talk about whatever's on your mind, 888-874-4888. Well, the governor gubernatorial primary wasn't the only primary that took place yesterday. There's some very interesting results from some of these primaries. You heard Herson Barrero, our guest, talk about Jeff Klein. The state senator from northern Manhattan, uh, northern Manhattan, northern Bronx, that is, Bronx County. He was challenged by former city councilman Oliver Coppell. Oliver Coppell, highly upset about Jeff Klein and his founding of the IDC, the Independent Democratic Conference, which had made common cause too often with the Republicans in the state legislature. And uh, you heard him talk about dissing Andrea Stewart-Cousins, who actually is the leader of the Democratic Conference in the state Senate, and who very few people even know about at this point. Well, Klein and Capel faced off, and Klein won relatively handily. Relatively handily. Another member of the IDC was challenged. He was Tony Avella in Queens. That race was much closer. He was challenged by former city controller John Liu. And trust me on this, you haven't heard the last of John Lou. John Lou's got he's going to run some run for something, and he's going to win. I think it was like fifty-two forty-seven somewhere along those lines when all the votes were counted. Close race. Now another race in Queens wasn't close. Senator Malcolm Smith, who will be senator only till the end of this year, the way things look now. Uh, was roundly trounced by former city council member Leroy Comrie. And I mean roundly trounced. It wasn't even close. Now, Malcolm Smith, of course, is facing criminal charges. And I think he figured that he would surmount that and win in this district because he had won a few times before. Well, not this time he didn't. Another person under indictment, State Senator John Sampson, who I know, who I've always believed is a good guy. He won. And I mean, he won against some long odds because every Democrat in Brooklyn, it seemed, except for Frank Sedio, the uh, county chair, turned against John Sampson. Del Smitherman, who I believe is from uh, SEIU, local 1199. He had the, de Blasio endorsed him. Everybody endorsed him. And he lost. And in that case, it wasn't all that close. The 20th Senate District, which was previously represented by the current borough president, Eric Adams. Uh, Jesse Hamilton soundly thumped Ruben Durancey. I mean, soundly thumped him. And again, that was... The, the endorsements were kind of split 50-50 there. In Upper Manhattan, State Senator Adriano Espayat, who challenged Charles Rangel just a few months back, won re-election, beat two candidates, including former city councilman Robert Jackson. Was 
close, but not that close. Not that close where you say, I demand a recount. No, it's not, not, sorry, not that close. In the North Bronx, there was a race between incumbent state senator Gustavo Rivera and current city council member Fernando Cabrera. Fernando Cabrera is a very, very conservative Democrat, and, and had he won, might likely have joined the IDC. He's a pastor. I don't agree with many of his views, especially his views about the LGBT community, who got up in arms when it was revealed that uh, Councilmember Cabrera had been supportive of the African government, I believe it's of Uganda, which passed some really virulently homophobic, anti-gay laws. And he appeared to be supportive of those laws. Well, Gustavo Rivera beat him fairly easily. Also winning yesterday, State Senator Ruth Hassel Thompson. There were a number of races in the Assembly, for the Assembly. And uh, the one thing that both of these primary races have in common is that if you win the Democratic primary, you're pretty much a shoe-in in the general election. I mean, there's no contest, nothing, nothing to worry about. So uh, former Councilman Charles Barron won fairly handily over and, and won the Democratic nomination for the seat that his wife, who's now a member of the city council, Inez Barron, held until she ran successfully for the city council. So essentially, the Barons changed seats. <laughs> That's how that ended up happening. And uh, a lot of people really have no clue who their assembly people are. I've always found that to be a bit of a shame. But the, a lot of people just, assembly, what's that? I don't know who that is. I'm telling you right now, you go to the streets of our great city and ask people, who is their assemblyman or assembly person, I should say. You're not going to find that many people who know. Now, you'll find some political junkies who know. Because that's what political junkies do. You know, they pay very, very close attention to this sort of thing. But a lot of people don't. And uh, what's troubling about that, at least from where I sit, is these are people who can change your life. I know it may not seem that way to people. Ah, they ain't doing nothing. No, they are. Trust me on that. They are. And all too often, we pay no mind to what they are capable of doing. Sheldon Silver, the Speaker of the Assembly, powerful, powerful, powerful man. Do most people know who he is outside of his district? I don't think so. But he has the ability, and I'm not dogging him for this. He's, uh, you know, he is who he is. And, I mean, I've talked to him. 
several times over the years. Uh, and, you know, one thing you don't want to do is necessarily cross Sheldon Silver. You just don't want to do it. The man can... Uh, the man can be a little... I don't want to say vindictive. What's a good what's a good synonym for vindictive, Martin? Put it this way, he'll get even if you cross him. How about that? Uh so I'm, you know, I'm not talking out of school here. Anyway, let me uh backtrack just a little. Uh and, and I I do before we finish here. I want to let people know about the 79th Assembly District in the Bronx. Oh, okay. Our good friend Harriet's on the line from Bayside, Queens. Harriet, good evening. How you doing? Good evening. I'm not a happy camper. Why? You were supporting John Lou, weren't you? You know that. Yeah. It was close, though. What? It was close. I think it was less than 1,000 votes, wasn't it? I know. It was like 600 votes. Yeah. It was very, very close. Why do you yeah. think he lost? I uh, hate to say this, but I think I have some very prejudiced um, neighbors in Bayside. Really? Oh, yeah. They've been known to write uh, racist graffiti on a Korean church. Oh, my goodness. Vile racist graffiti. Wow. And... Uh, as far as Cuomo is concerned, I was tempted to vote for for Zephyr Teachout, but I said, I can't do a protest vote with someone who I don't want to win because I don't think she's qualified to be governor as much as I don't like Cuomo. Really? But Kathy Hochul, I think that she's going to be just like Senator Gillibrand, who... Uh, Person Barrero didn't like in the beginning either, but remember she, both she and uh, Kathy Hochul, represent conservative districts. Yeah, they do. And uh, she has to represent her her district. What did you think of Tim Wu? Um, the same thing I thought of Zephyr Teachout. Not qualified. Not qualified. And you know. To me, being qualified is important. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, look, you, you know, you don't want an unqualified person. Uh-huh. I just wonder the way, what, you know. I'm happy that Leroy Comrie won. Yeah, that uh, that really wasn't close. Yeah. 69% per, percent to eight, uh, 69 to 19. Yeah. And um, What about Toby Stavisky? I like her very much. I, I figured she would win. There's no reason to replace her. She's very good. She comes to speak to our club, even though um, we're not in her district. We're in her neighborhood, her neighboring district. Mm-hmm. One thing about Tony Avella, he doesn't come near our club. Really? So. I don't And he's been in the I, council before, right? He's been in the council. And then he was our state senator. And 
you know, there are strange things. Why did he want to be borough president? I, I don't mean, know. It's largely symbolic gig. I mean, uh, and there are people who I know who never liked him because they think he's all talk. Well. Doesn't get anything <laughs> done. You know, I mean, that's that's politicians, many of them, Harriet, and you know this because you've been around for a minute and you're astute. Many politicians are all talk. If you got yeah. rid of every politician, if you voted out of office, every politician yeah. who just was all talk, you wouldn't have a state legislature. But he doesn't know who to talk to. Ah, okay. All he right. doesn't know to, who to talk to. Same thing with Governor Cuomo. Uh, yes, he had to win, but I'm glad that they took a big chunk out of his win. All right. Harry, got to run, but thank you so much for calling. As always, great talking with you. And you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good friend Harriet from Bayside. Let's go out to Ferguson, Missouri for a moment, shall we? Surely. You know, they had a city council meeting, the first city council meeting since Michael Brown was killed by police. And uh, that was last night, as a matter of fact. And people in Ferguson aren't happy, even now. They're not happy. They took to the streets. And now, at this council meeting, they put those elected officials on notice. And this is something that people ought to pay very close attention to. This is a town of, what, 21,000 people. It's not a gigantic town. And they have had disproportionate... The town, I think, is like two-thirds black. They got three black cops on a force of 50-some-odd. And I, I, I think they may have one black city councilman. Now, I don't know whether that's gerrymandering, stupidity, or whatever. But uh, somebody poked a snake in Ferguson. And people are now saying, and they, they put the elected officials that were there last night on notice. They essentially said, look, you guys are part of the problem. One woman from Ferguson said when she called to report that her car was stolen, she called the cops to say, hey, they took my car. They locked her up. And she said, and this is, this is prophetic, Mike Brown had to die for our voices to be heard. Another resident said we, they were told the members of the city council in Ferguson, they are all in political, I emphasize, political danger. Quote, and this is from Shelley Gradford, you are now on notice. It is evident that residents of Ferguson have for a long time been harassed. This must end. Another guy went even further. You've lost your authority to govern this community. You're going to have to step aside gracefully if this community is going to heal. Now, see, they're angry. They're upset. And they know now that the black folks in Ferguson essentially were sleeping giants. And, yes, it took the death of a young man. By the way, a totally unnecessary death of a young man in order to bring this across to people. Now let's see if words get translated 
to actions. Closer to home, and, and see, Martin is from Jersey, so this will interest him. Governor Chris Christie, you voted for him, didn't you, Martin? Admit it. Admit it. Absolutely not. <laughs> All right. I'm just checking. Uh, he has issued a directive day before yesterday. Says the state would not prosecute casinos and racetracks for accepting wagers on most athletic contests. Now, there's a reason Chris Christie did this. And that is because... Casinos are closing in Atlantic City like nobody's business. Just like bam, bam, bam. Gone. Showboat, gone. Ravel, gone. This one, gone. That one, gone. One of those god-awful places with Trump's name on it, gone. So Chris Christie figures the way to try and stop the bleeding in Atlantic City, where, by the way, as many as 10,000 people who worked in these casinos may lose their gigs. Actually, probably already some of them have lost their gigs. And when it's all said and done, it could be that many. So Chris Christie, who was off in Mexico not that long. You notice Obama goes to play golf, they get all over his case. Christie, while all these casinos are closing, goes to Mexico, nobody says a word. Oh, he's prepping for 2016. Back here and take care of Atlantic City. And see, this directive saying, okay, now, he's got to wait because there was a judge who had earlier blocked sports betting. And it's a very twisted and complicated saga as to why he was able to do that. But, and Martin says, I only got five minutes, which I've already probably bloviated for at least a minute and a half. Uh, see, there's a lesson to be learned in all this, right? Because casino operators are descending on New York like vultures on a roadkill, right? Because they want to locate in New York. We already got that Racino out by Aqueduct. They want to locate upstate. They want to do this. They want to do that. They want to do the other. Take a lesson from Atlantic City. Because in 1976, Atlantic City started allowing, you know, the casinos, opened all these casinos, and everybody was thought they were going to live happily ever after. And Atlantic City's casino industry lasted exactly a generation. One generation. And by the way, one of my five least favorite people, Donald Trump. Now, he's not really a, a majority owner anymore, but Trump Entertainment Resorts filed for bankruptcy. And threatened to close the Trump Taj Mahal by Thanksgiving if they couldn't cut expenses drastically. What are they going to have, like self-service croupiers? <laughs> what are they going to do? How are you going to cut expenses? The only way you can cut expenses is close part of the hotel. And nobody wants to go to a half-abandoned casino, okay? Nobody wants to go. But see, this is because... Pennsylvania and Delaware and all the rest of these places look, took one look at Atlantic City and said to themselves, oh, no, you don't. No, 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 you don't. We're getting some of that, too. So have fun, Chris Christie. You know, it's the, one, uh, the first anniversary of Bridgegate was earlier. And uh, 
you know, you don't have a, a whole heck of a lot of jobs growth there in the Garden State. But, hey, you know what? You'll figure something out. So here's our final segment called To the Ridiculous. And I got two stories, polar opposites, that show ridiculousness. One, some fool or group of fools is giving out KKK recruitment flyers in Suffolk County. That's Long Island, New York. And Suffolk County lawmakers and political leaders denounced those flyers. And by the way, they were distributed in three residential neighborhoods. The flyers purported to be from the North Carolina-based Loyal White Knights of the KKK. Uh, Residents in Babylon Village and Shirley reported them, and also Hampton Bays. And one legislator said, quote, they are cowards who hide behind a veil and are too ashamed to stand by their beliefs publicly. If I could sing, I'd sing amen. Because <laughs> it's absolutely true. But see, now here's the opposite of this. Okay. Just in case you think that racist foolishness is the exclusive province of white people. Two women, black women in Brooklyn, have been accused of taking over an apartment by gunpoint, threatening three roommates with murder if they didn't pack up and leave. Now, they did this after they lost out on the rental and are upset about gentrification. So you got white fools on the island and black fools in Brooklyn. You get me? (laughs) I definitely get you. It ain't all one and it ain't all the other. You know, uh, although the black fools got busted, <laughs> they got arrested. Uh, and uh, what's what's crazy about this is these two women ran these three roommates out of the apartment and then moved in themselves. <laughs> this is this is just so silly. Oh, I hear music in the background. That means I got to get out of here. Yeah, I guess it does. Martin, thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Progressive Radio Network, thank you so much. I I got to talk to Gary Null today, and I told him, I feel so exhilarated when I'm done doing this show. I don't know what to do, except run to the train and go home. We'll be back next week, 6 o'clock, live and in the flesh. For the Mark Riley Show, I am he. Have yourselves a great week ahead.